Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. Welcome again to Redeemer. I'm so glad uh, that we can be together today uh, as we continue to walk through Matthew's Gospel. If you've been uh, on the Zoom calls the last several weeks, uh, we've been looking at uh, the passages in Matthew and the story uh, of Jesus. So we've seen um, in the last couple of weeks kind of the scandalous nature of who Jesus is, uh, the uh, demand that he brings upon us. Uh, and today, as we approach this, we come to the climax in the book of Matthew. This is the kind of literary and theological high point uh, of the gospel of the Gospel of Matthew. And it's with Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Maybe you've heard this passage before. It's a familiar one. And like any good movie or play, you have that moment on which the whole entire plot of the film or the play comes together and the rest of the story uh, is set up. And that's exactly what happens here in Matthew's story today. The entire story has been leading to this question uh, and to this point. And this is the turning point. And now here in Matthew's gospel, we shift and begin to prepare for the end, for the last days uh, of Jesus. But before we do that, let us pray. Dearly Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for your word and the challenge that it is to us, uh, the ways that it challenges us to think about who you are and who we are uh, in light of you, uh, and the ways in which you call us to follow after you and to pattern ourselves uh, after who you are and what you've done. God, I pray today as we encounter this passage, maybe for the first time, that you will inspire in us uh, a strength uh, to follow you wherever you should lead us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So to set today's passage kind of in context, I want to give us maybe a little bit more familiar example to kind of set up Peter, uh, Jesus's question. So picture something with me. Uh, there's a popular U.S. senator who has spent a few years in the Senate passing legislation, proposing bills, voting, doing the things that senators, I would add, are supposed to do, right? I know it's been a long time. But during their time in the Senate, they decide to write uh, their life story down in a memoir. And this memoir becomes a New York Times uh, bestseller. And so their story uh, is out there. And in that memoir, they include the things that shaped their life, who made them, uh, the events that made them who they are. A few months go by and this senator starts touring the country. They're, they're not in their home state anymore. They're in New York City. Maybe they're in uh, L.A. Maybe they're in Florida. And then all of a sudden they end up in this little state called Iowa. And if you are paying any attention to politics, if you know anything about politics, you should be starting to ask some questions about this person. They have a book. They're appearing on late night shows. They're going to, let's say, key states. And the key question you would have at this point, if you are a political connoisseur, is this. Are you running for president? Why would we ask that question of that person? But we ask it for the central point, the activity of the person are all the things that someone would do if they were running for president. And so the activity drives the conversation. They don't have to necessarily say anything explicit, but the activity is enough to spur everyone's imagination to say, hey, I think this person has higher aspirations than just their local office. So why would the person just not come out and say, hey, everybody, just want to let the cat out of the bag. Um, I'm running for president. Just thought y'all should know. Well, as you can imagine, 
the term president is a pretty loaded term with a lot of expectations because as soon as you say you are running for president, um, you're going to need to be able to answer some key questions, right? Like what's your foreign policy? What's your view on economics? Um, what are the things that you're going to pursue in your administration? And so these important questions need to be answered. And so by showing up in Iowa, by forming an exploratory committee, a candidate signals that they have intentions of running for president. Their activity carries significance. It says something. And a similar idea happens here today in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, so far in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been going throughout the entire region of Galilee, healing people, exercising demons, and preaching about this thing called the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so as Jesus is doing this, it's these activities of preaching and teaching and healing that begin to spur the question in people's minds. Who is this person? What are they doing? Jesus goes around talking about the kingdom everywhere he goes. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And so Jesus' own activity of healing and talking about the kingdom raises the issue that maybe he has something to do with it. And so, Jesus, what do you have to do with this kingdom that you're talking about? What's his role? Jesus knows this, and so in today's passage in Matthew uh, chapter 16, he raises the question, what has my activity been spurring the people to ask? Who do the people say that I am? In other words, Jesus is saying, I've been going throughout this area, preaching and healing, and what is it that the people think that I'm doing? Do they think this is just like, you know, a nice thing going on, and we're really happy to have Jesus with us, but, you know, oh well? Or are the responses demanding uh, an answer. And so the responses that um, Peter provides are uh, varied. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. In essence, people think that you are a prophet from, like, a prophet from the Old Testament. You're doing the things that the prophets did. But Jesus asked directly to his disciples. That's what they say. You've been with me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and leaves no doubt, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Now, the interesting thing is that Peter's answer is direct, and it's exactly the right answer. This is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the son of the living God. Good answer, right? We can, we can move on. We can just go from wherever uh, this goes and go on to the next week's sermon, end of Sunday. Not so fast. Uh, I think there's something interesting, and I want to kind of unpack a, a few of the things that are, are said in this text and where they're said. Now, we may not be as familiar with the geography of ancient Israel, but Jesus brings his disciples to a very specific place in the land. And it's a, Syria, it's a city known as Caesarea Philippi. It's a district. Again, it's a small but pretty significant detail. Back in verse 13, we find this out. And if you're familiar with the geography, this story takes place in the far north of Israel. You're literally right on the borderlines. If you were to go there today, you can stand there, and when you look over the mountain range, you're looking over into the nation of Syria. I mean, you're right on the edge. And the most famous city in this region was this Greek city called Peneus. And this was a pagan site for worship of a god named Pan, who is associated with the worship of nature. And this is where Jesus takes his disciples to have the conversation about who he is. And so it's somewhat ironic that the co confession that Peter makes takes place here. 
in this location in one of the most pagan places in the near region. Uh, it's as if Jesus is saying, and you've got this as it goes on, even in the darkest places, I will establish my church. That I will go to the most difficult places, and there's where I'm going to begin. There's a really important theology of mission here. Sometimes the easiest places for Christianity are not always the best places. Likewise, in the places that we'd think Christianity would have no chance, it flourishes. And it raises this question, where are the persons or the places that we've written off because we think it's just too difficult? But that's just beyond what Jesus can do. That's just beyond something that uh, the gospel can transform. Jesus' question and answer here provides a profound statement on the power and ability of God to work and to transform in this world. As he'll say in a few moments, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. Uh, but back to Peter's answer. Peter's answer, as I said, was the right one. And in verse 17, Jesus responds with a beatitude. He says to, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. His blessing continues. The blessing of Jesus continues for a few more verses. And now we get to one of the most commented on passages in the book of Matthew. These verses throughout church history have been pretty important. How important, you ask? Well, these verses can build buildings. In fact, if you've ever been to Rome, uh, I was there uh, a few years ago, and when you walk through the Vatican, and when you walk through the kind of the precincts, you begin to see that these verses matter. They, they build things. Uh, and as you walk along the, pit, the pillars outside of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, you begin to see names, names of different popes. Uh, and so you can find Ratzinger, you can find John Paul. Uh, and if you keep going, you'll finally get to a name, and that name in Latin is Peter. Uh, and that's one way of interpreting this passage. Jesus says, you, Peter, are the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so Peter gets the keys to the kingdom, and the keys are passed down every generation. You see, Jesus' words to Peter are part of a wordplay here. The name Peter, as you might know, is the Greek word petros, which is the same word for rock or for stone. And so Jesus is saying, uh, you are the rock, and on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And I'll say one interpretation, this is where we get the succession of um, apostolic authority. And we have Peter identified here as the starting point. Uh, Peter as the starting point actually makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but he plays a really special role in the Gospels in the book of Acts. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see that it's Peter who's kind of the spokesperson for the entire group. He's the one that people ask questions of. Peter is the one who walks on water. When Jesus addresses the question to the 12, and the disciples, uh, 12 of the disciples in this passage, it's Peter who answers. He's the ringleader for the rest of the disciples. When we look at the book of Acts, we also see this. It's Peter who gives the first sermon at Pentecost. It's Peter who in Acts 10 meets one of the first Gentiles who gets converted to Christianity, who's named Cornelius. So in a very true sense, Peter is the person with whom Jesus starts to build the church. And I do think that this passage is talking about apostolic authority. Apostolic authority is a really important thing. It's this idea that part of the building up of the church, especially in the early years, 
was about being around people who were with Jesus, who heard him speak, who saw the miracles, and who saw him after his resurrection. The church is built on this apostolic authority in the sense that we want to believe the things that the early church believed about God, Jesus, ethics, mission, and life in the world to come. We don't want to innovate. We want to uh, follow through on the things that have been taught. We do believe that there's something really, really important about the way we talk about God, Jesus, and his interaction with the world, and how that rests on apostolic authority. It rests on the people who spent time with Jesus. The early apostles, Paul included, are the foundation of what we believe, and that informs how we live. And I think this passage today bears out that emphasis, that our faith in Jesus rests on the trustworthiness of those first eyewitnesses to his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus says, you have been given the keys to the kingdom, and we want to follow in that light. So Jesus' blessing continues to Peter. He says, not only are you given the keys to the kingdom, but when he talks about the kingdom, when he talks about the church, he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades is an interesting phrase. What does this mean? Uh, in Jewish thought during this time, the gates of Hades referred to the place of the dead. It's the gathering place that the dead go after they die. When someone refers to Hades, they're referring to death. Today, we would something like, that person is knocking at death's door. We have similar kind of phrases. And Jesus' statement that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church is a powerful promise that death does not have the final word in the Christian story. In fact, in just a few chapters, Jesus will overcome the power of death. And in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the Christian anthem is, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The promise of Jesus is that death, death does not have the final say over our lives. And that is actually an utterly freeing concept. And this is why church history has been filled with stories of martyrs. Christians who have been willing to die for their faith because they believe that Jesus' promise that ultimate death will not overcome them. Death will not stop the church. The, church, the Christian story is one of resurrection from the dead. We don't get martyrdom. We don't get that tradition without this promise and believing this promise. And if there's anything in our day that we might not believe, it's probably this. Because we flee from death. We are so afraid of it. But Jesus' promise to us is that the gates of Hades will not overcome. The promise of Jesus also brings a seriousness with it. When we confess like Peter that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, these words are not politically neutral. They come with consequences, sometimes life-altering consequences. Uh, about five years ago, I was preaching on the same passage, um, and it was during the time when lots of our brothers and sisters, who still currently are suffering for their faith, were dying in large, large numbers. And at that time, we were on Facebook, people changed all their Facebook profiles to the Arabic letter uh, N uh, to signify Christian. Maybe you remember doing that. Um, and it's these phrases and it's these world realities that show us that these words have consequences. The confession of Jesus as Lord, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not something that should be said flippantly. When we say these words, we realize, and when we look around the world and see what these conclusions mean, 
it shows us that Christianity is not as safe as we first believed, that we are part of a dangerous endeavor. And Jesus' command to take up your cross is not mere theory. Too often, it is literal. Our confessions have consequences. Our confessions mean something. And verses like these are really important to me for personal reasons too. I grew up in the church, and ever since I can remember, I have been a part of the church. I spent my days running through pews when I was little. And now having been in the church for over, let's say, 25 to 30 years, just ballpark it with me, um, I've seen so many things that can be really, really discouraging. I've seen leaders fail. I've seen the church be full of hypocrites. And I've seen the church utterly and devastatingly mess things up. However, I've also seen the church and churches rebuild from those ashes. I've seen lives restored, and I've seen the church authentically love people into the kingdom. In short, I've seen resurrection and transformation. And verses like these remind me that despite how often the church can fail, and sadly too often it does, the story is not one of failure, but one of faithfulness. Because if death can't overcome the church, well, then bad leaders sure won't overcome it either. If death can't overcome the church, then, then my response is that sometimes my bad experience won't overcome it as well. My task, as I see it, is to know how to love the church well with all of its shortcomings and failures. And sometimes there's a role for pointing out those shortcomings and failures as part of that love of the church. But my task is to know how to love the church well. Why? Because Jesus died for the church, and the church matters to Jesus. The church is how God is working to bring his kingdom to earth, and I want to be a part of that. And so the church is not something optional that we tack on to the end of our social calendar. The church is not something that we do because it's convenient or simply because it's part of our culture. No, we are part of the church because we believe that this is how God has chosen to build his kingdom, and that's something worth participating in. It's not about a building. It's about the movement of God invading the darkness and bringing light. And Jesus invites us into that. And this is Jesus' promising words to Peter here. Now, as Jesus moves on in this conversation for Peter, it takes an interesting turn. He shifts his imagery a bit. And so what I find is he ends his conversation with Peter. It ends in a really weird way. Much of the passage is actually kind of positive. We've got blessings. We're giving away keys. It's really great stuff. Jesus is like, you get a key. Actually, just Peter gets the key. Everyone else can watch Peter get the key. Um, And now the next thing that we think we're going to read is that Jesus will say, or Matthew will tell us, that then Jesus told them to go shout it from the mountaintop. Right? Like, you got the right answer. Go tell it to as many people as you can. But that would be wrong. Matthew says that Jesus told the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So right answer, just, just kind of keep it to yourselves at this moment. And it's at this point in the story where we've wondered if we've fallen asleep, right? Maybe even during the sermon. You're like, wait, did I, did I hear that wrong? And maybe we missed something really, really important. We wonder if Jesus saying don't tell anyone, is that a misprint? Is this why I shouldn't have bought in the clearance Bible? Did I get one that maybe didn't have all the words in it? Um, no, Jesus says what he says. He says, don't tell anyone. Now, I think there's an implied yet 
But why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus say, don't tell people who I am? I thought that was the goal of Christians, right? Tell others about Jesus. Well, back at the beginning of the sermon, remember um, when we talked about running for president? One of the problems about running for president is that as soon as you do, you get a whole lot of expectations and questions. Well, the same thing happens in the first century when you say that you are the Messiah. The term Messiah was a loaded term that came with a lot of expectations. It came with a job description. And for those that did expect a Messiah, many thought it would be a son of David, which Jesus is. But what son of David meant was that the Messiah will have an army. The Messiah will have swords. The Messiah will have battles. When you, think, when you say Messiah in the first century, people think, let's get ready for battle. Let's get ready for war. But Jesus disagrees. He doesn't want war. He doesn't want violence. And so the reason Jesus tells his disciples not to tell anyone is he doesn't want to be misunderstood. We would call this getting out ahead of the message. You want to be on the forefront and defining that on your own terms. And this is what Jesus is doing. He wants them to define what it means for him to be Messiah, how he sees it. And so as soon as the very next verses, we'll see that the same Peter who called Jesus the Messiah doesn't get what type of Messiah Jesus is going to be, right? This is the positive part of the story. The next story right after this gospel reading is Jesus being called Satan and being told to get behind Jesus because he objects to the way in which Jesus wants to be the Messiah. And so here's what I get from that. Peter had the right title, but he had the wrong idea. He could check the box. This is who Jesus is, but he couldn't connect the dots on what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, One commentator puts it especially well. I love his quote here. He says this, quote, Peter's life eloquently teaches that it is entirely possible to be Christ-centered and yet not cross-centered. And so everything is skewed. Let me read that one more time. Peter's life eloquently teaches it is entirely possible to be Christ-centered and yet not cross-centered. And so everything is skewed. What what is he saying? He's saying you can get the right title, but unless you want to follow through in the way in which Jesus wants to be Messiah, everything is messed up. And so I wonder if it's possible for Peter, is it possible for us too? How can we be Christ-centered Messiah-centered, but not cross-centered. That is, how can we say, yes, Jesus, you're the Messiah, but we don't want to live how you've taught us to live. Too often we can say the right things about Jesus, but fail to live in the way that Jesus envisions. We love Jesus as Lord, but as long as he doesn't talk about caring for the poor, or at least in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable. We love Jesus as the Messiah, as long as that doesn't mean the death of anything we hold dear especially our rights. We love following Jesus as Messiah, King, and Lord, unless it results in us losing some sense of power or control over our lives or over our communities. Perhaps following Jesus as Messiah, King, and Lord means exactly that. Following his teaching, caring for the poor, and the giving up of our rights for the sake of following our crucified and risen Lord. I think like Peter, we can affirm the right things about Jesus without actually wanting to follow him. Because what Peter picks up, maybe more than we do, is that to follow Jesus means to follow him to the cross. And we don't want to die. We don't want to lose 
our life. And so what do we do? We cling to power. Or we offload it so that others can cling to power and we can cling to them. Because following Jesus means giving up all those things that we hold dear. I think what Peter wanted, and I would suggest that we want well, that, that we want as well, is a Jesus molded in our own image. A Jesus who simply comes in and blesses what we're currently doing without any requests or demands. We want, some, we want someone to fight our battles, to vanquish our enemies, and to defend our dreams. And the astounding, surprising part of the Gospels is that Jesus says he doesn't really want anything to do with that. And this is where Peter objects. Jesus, I want you to join with me on my mission for your world. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, Peter, I want you to join with me on my vision for this world. And it may not align with yours. What if this is the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels? Where is Jesus calling us to follow him? In conclusion, despite the failure of both Peter and ourselves to grasp who Jesus is, Jesus still mind-bogglingly slow, mind-bogglingly allows the kingdom to be entrusted to Peter and this group with the church, with the keys to the kingdom, even in spite of the ways that they will still fall short in the short time. What we can see is that God is still using people to carry his kingdom faithfully into a world to witness to the power of the resurrection, and he still calls us to follow him today. The question is, will we? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.